0: informing america's farmers and ranchers it's adams on agriculture produced by the american ag radio network here's your host mike adams
1: hello everyone and welcome to adams on agriculture here we are midweek already busy week it's going to be tomorrow and friday i'll be in dallas for the world meat congress have a chance to talk with a lot of folks from this country and other countries and we'll discuss trade and prospects of selling more u.s meat products around the world so be there tomorrow and friday being a big dallas cowboys fan that i am always enjoy my uh, visits to dallas so hope you'll join us for our broadcast from the world meat congress tomorrow and friday we have lots to talk about today lots going on in the news Uh, This on-again, off-again tariff war with China. We're going to talk about uh, the impact on U.S. pork producers. We'll check in with the Director of International Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council, what this is costing U.S. pork producers. Jeff Cooper with Renewable Fuels Association will join us. Big news there. RFA, one of the groups suing EPA over the uh, RFS refinery waivers guess we should have seen this coming and uh, we're going to get the very latest on that and then also we're going to talk with the ceo of the national biodiesel board they have made an interesting uh, change of position they have withdrawn their support of uh, pushing for a change in the uh, blender's credit for biodiesel they wanted that uh, to be changed to a producer's credit now they've uh, backed away from that we'll find out why that's coming up a little bit later on in the program but first let's check in with chris clayton with dtn and Chris, plenty going on in the news, even with Congress not in session this week. Uh, let's start with the uh, the lawsuit. As I mentioned, I guess we should have seen this coming because the renewable fuels industry and others have been very uh, upset and uh, frustrated with EPA's handling of these uh, waivers, uh, supposedly for small refineries, uh, showing a hardship, but we've seen it expand to uh, big refineries uh, with big profits. Uh, so now a lawsuit, uh, interesting move I guess we should have expected this would wind up in the courts.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, especially in, in. Good morning, Mike. Uh, first of all, I, I didn't know you were a Cowboys fan. That uh, hurts me deeply. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, um, the um, the the one of the big issues I think uh, with the lawsuit and pushing it is, is the fact of just providing a little some sunshine on what exactly was the rationale and how many. Of these uh, waivers, have uh, have there been? How many gallons were uh, uh, pushed off, uh, essentially? And a lot of these waivers were uh, were backloaded to 2016, uh, 2017. So there are so many different issues here that um, eventually erode demand for uh, for ethanol. And then you, yes, you have a lot of these companies very profitable and uh, it really raises the question what exactly a hardship waiver is supposed to be.
1: So we'll see how this makes its way through the uh, the legal process and uh, how far it goes and what kind of resolution we may see. I guess what we have not seen is really any indication that the EPA is going to change how they, their way of business on these, And uh, but we are waiting. I wonder if we'll know, or when we would know, about the, the request by Marathon for a waiver.
2: Right, uh, you know, a big, uh, another big giant uh, oil company, and whether they would get approved for that. Even though, from what I understand, their smallest refinery uh, uh, still might be too big to um, to be accepted under this uh, program. But um, this is uh, kind of the situation that Scott Pruitt has created over there at EPA, and um, it's going to continue to drag
3: on.
1: <coughs> we will me, we'll have it. more on this lawsuit coming up uh, when we talk with Jeff Cooper with Renewable Fuels Association a little bit later. Meanwhile, this situation with China, it's like, I mean, it's back and forth, it's like watching a tennis match. Are tariffs on? Are they off? Are we getting along with them? Are we not? Are we retaliating? Are they retaliating? It's hard to keep up with this. Uh,
2: it is, and uh, it was. And I, I'm assuming, I guess, that uh, the Trump administration felt they still needed another part uh, of the deck, so to speak, when um, uh, Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, he's supposed to go over there and uh, have some more talks um, later this week in China. But, uh, excuse me, the tariffs are supposed to go in place at the end of the month. Um, obviously, it upset the Chinese uh, greatly coming back from um, a week or two ago when it looked like uh, this stuff was going to cool off a bit. Uh, it goes back into play, and, and it is. It's like it's this uh, crazy tennis match, and it's really hard to, uh, to keep score, but you know when you look at the markets every day, um, you can just see the reaction. Uh, the reaction yesterday was uh, was a uh, price declines not only in uh, the uh, commodity markets, but you know I think some of the effect of the uh, def- decline in the stock market was also related to this as well.
1: Meanwhile, groups uh, like the National Pork Producers Council pointing out the damage that's been already being felt uh, by U.S. pork producers over the tensions between. U.S. and China. We'll talk about that a little later in this program as well. So lot's going on there. Meanwhile, Chris, also in the news, uh, another step forward for a big uh, agribusiness merger.
2: Yeah, the uh, the Bayer-Monsanto merger seems to be pretty much uh, smoothed out of what's, what's going to take place. And uh, uh, depending on the views on how you feel about uh, corporate consolidation uh, in agriculture, Um, You know, there have been different takes on this already, but uh, it looks like BASF is going to become a bigger player, obviously, in both seed and chemical businesses um, with uh, the product lines they're going to be getting from both there and uh, some, uh, um, I guess, uh, concessions from Monsanto as well. But all this is going to green light the uh, uh, the merger. Uh, This has really been in effect since last fall because Bayer already had agreed last fall to sell a great deal of assets to BASF. Some other stuff was added on to that. It was interesting. They really pushed this idea that BASF also, Bear had to give up some of its digital agriculture components to BASF as well. But um, the merger is probably going to be uh, finalized, I would imagine, before before Labor Day.
1: And one other topic before we... uh... Before we let you go, what's your take real quick, Chris, on the farm bill whenever we do get to that next vote? Do you think this delay helps uh, those trying to get it passed or helps those trying to keep it from being passed?
2: Um, you know, I think it's going to depend a lot on, on how much the, uh, the Republican caucus in the House divides itself over this immigration these immigration votes that, uh, that may happen right before that. Um, and, uh, do they split themselves even further on some of these, uh, is some of these issues, um, or are they able to pass a bill on immigration that they know is not going to go anywhere in the Senate? Um, you know, regardless, I think of what the house does in immigration, I, I don't see the Senate, um, taking this up before, uh, this election. I don't see any benefit for, either party, uh, really, in uh, in this fight uh, over the summer. But um, that that's really, I think, is going to be a, a big right. situation coming up.
1: So we'll keep an eye on that, and we'll follow your reporting on it as well. Chris, as always, thank you for being with us.
2: Uh, thanks for having me, Mike.
1: You bet. Take care. And go Cowboys. Chris Clayton with DTN. All right, coming up next. We'll talk with the Director of International Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council here on AOA Adams on Agriculture.
4: The mighty Prosaro, king of fungicides. Its fast action and long residual make it the keeper of grain quality and yield. The hammer of head and leaf diseases. The number one reducer of scab. When your goal is greater wheat quality, and higher yield. Use Prosaro fungicide and the crown of higher profit will be yours. Learn more at Prosaro.us. Always read and follow little instructions.
5: I live alone so when I slipped and fell in the kitchen last month and couldn't get to a phone that's when I knew I needed Life Alert. With just one press of this button I'm connected to the Life Alert Center where I can get the help I need even when I cannot reach a phone. With Life Alert, I'm never alone.
6: For a free Life Alert brochure, call 800 981 2126. That's 800 981 2126. Call now at 800 981 2126 to get a free brochure.
7: All right, crew, let's get her dug.
5: Honey, you want to give me a hand? I'm planting that tree, remember?
7: No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban. and water and sewer lines. So before you do this, or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance.
0: information america's farmers and ranchers need to know adams on agriculture now back to mike adams
1: welcome back we've been talking about the on again off again trade tensions between the u.s and china i guess the tensions have always been there but uh seems like one day you're hearing that uh, we're it's a truce and uh, you know we're talking and things are friendly and then now we're hearing more about tariffs again and retaliation so Uh, it's ongoing and certainly it's impacting a lot of different areas including and especially the pork industry joining us now is maria ziba she's director of international affairs for the national pork producers council maria thank you for joining us Um, while we wait for all this to get sorted out u.s pork producers are already being financially impacted right
5: that's correct and thanks again for having me on Um, our producers are definitely feeling the pinch and um, since March of this year, we've heard a, a lot from them since these announcements have been made. And what we're hearing from our producers is that, that they're hurting, and we quantified that. And since March 1st of this year, uh, hog futures have dropped $18 per animal. And although that all can't be attributed to just the China problem, it certainly is the main factor.
1: Now we hear about tariffs on, tariffs off, uh, what, what, what products do have or don't have tariffs. What's the situation right now for U.S. pork going into China?
5: For U.S. pork producers, we are facing a 25% duty on our export products, and that has not gone away. That has been in effect since March 1st um, due to, in, in retaliation to the steel and aluminum. Um, I think that a lot of other sectors, they're still waiting to see how things pan out. As you mentioned earlier, things are off, things are on. But unfortunately for for us and, and U.S. Um, pork, it's been on.
1: Yeah, and I think we lose sight of that. I mean, there was kind of a euphoria within U.S. agriculture recently that, oh, China's going to be buying, 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 and we're at a... Uh, you know, a truce, a ceasefire in this trade war with uh, China, and things are good. But in the case of pork, that's not the case. Uh, These these duties are still in place.
5: They're still in place. Um, Obviously, we we are shipping still to China, despite the fact that we have a 25% duty on our products. But it makes it harder for us to compete in the Chinese market.
1: I'm about to go to Dallas for the World Meat Congress. No doubt uh, this will be a topic of conversation there. But when we look at the importance of exports to the uh, U.S. pork industry, I mean, it's critical, right?
5: Most certainly it's critical that we continue to have access to China and other markets, um, NAFTA markets especially. You know, we produce the highest quality, the safest products in the world, and the bottom line for our producers is that exports accounted for more than $53, the average um, $149 value of the hog, so it it means a lot of money. Without exports, we're really going to suffer um, as an industry, and and it's going to have an impact on the rural economy, because that all trickles down.
1: We're talking with Maria Ziba, she's Director of International Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council. Not that there's ever a good time for this, Maria, but now is an especially uh, critical time because we see the industry, U.S. pork industry, expanding production and new pork processing plants coming online either now or soon, uh, so a lot of that, uh, you know, is certainly based on what we hope is increased export opportunities around the world.
5: And that's what our, what we're hearing from our producers. Um, we know that we're, we have five new processing plants coming online um, soon or have recently opened. That's about 10% increased production capacity and that product needs to go um, somewhere. We, we do have a robust um, consumption here in the United States which we're, we're hoping to increase but you know the opportunities really do lie outside our borders, and for U.S. pork producers, we we are the, the example of why free trade works. We went from a net importer of pork in the early '90s to now a net exporter, um, exporting over $6 billion, $6.5 dollars billion in 2016 and 2017. Excuse me. So we need to continue that trajectory.
1: Without these duties, what kind of a market uh, share do you think we could get into China?
5: We've had a really positive – I can only um, talk about what we've, we've done in the past. and In the past, we've fared very well with our competitors in the European Union and other countries. Um, right now, we have to put that into perspective. Um, Our biggest competitors around the world happen to be in the EU, and they're not facing a 25% duty, and we are. So, you know, that that is going to put us into a little bit of a disadvantage um, when they're not paying a 25% tax.
1: In agriculture, we often talk about uh, the... The goal of trying to get a level playing field, if we can achieve that, we'll take our chances. Obviously, in China, when it comes to selling pork, it's not a level playing field between us and our competitors.
5: We definitely have a lot of obstacles that we face when exporting to China, despite all that. And I think it's a tribute to our producers who produce such a high-quality product for such a low cost that we are able to maintain that competitive advantage despite not, you know, having these number of, of barriers that we face. And that's a real tribute to U.S. agriculture.
1: So obviously these uh, ongoing trade talks with China are, are, are vitally important to the U.S. pork industry, as are, uh, other talks going on, the NAFTA talks, uh, certainly, and uh, what are you hearing there, Maria? We we don't seem to be hearing a lot of positive news right now about any quick resolution to NAFTA. The
5: NAFTA negotiations are ongoing. Um, you know, we are facing a number of deadlines, whether it's our own domestic deadlines of putting forward the agreement by a set time so that we can vote on it. Um, we've blue past that headline um, a few weeks ago, That the deadline that Congress put down. Um, there are elections coming up on July 1st in Mexico, and obviously that's going to definitely affect um, how we're going to be able to negotiate, because after July 1st, we're going to have a new president in Mexico. That person isn't going to come into power until December. So you have a lot of outside influence on on nafta and it doesn't really help the trade atmosphere because we have so many things that are going on simultaneously with whether they're you know the talks in korea the talks in china um, nafta and and all of this has our producers um, frankly you know a little scared because we're, we, we're not in, instability is um, uh, It doesn't help um, to plan for the future um, when you don't know what the future is going to hold.
1: So I'm sure you're stressing this to administration officials about uh, the impact of all this on U.S. pork producers.
5: Yes, we've been in constant contact with the administration um, at various levels um, and with Congress because ultimately Congress does have a role to play um, throughout these negotiations.
1: You know, we hear these rumors that maybe some sort of a revival of TPP, or then we start hearing, well, maybe something similar to that between the U.S. and Japan in a bilateral deal. Are you hearing anything along those lines? Is there anything happening there?
5: I keep pressing uh, my counterparts and the administration for... Um, us to to be part of um, to have a free trade agreement with Japan, that's our number one priority aside from what we've already discussed um, we need to continue to expand and we need to have a free trade agreement or some sort of agreement with the Japanese that's going to benefit U.S. pork producers you know we're facing a lot of competition despite in Japan despite the fact that they're a number one export market, Um, last year we exported over a billion dollars to the japanese market and right now we're going to be facing in the in the upcoming years competition from the european union as they essentially copy and pasted the agreement um, that we had on pork and they're going to have that preferential access and that entry into japan while we're sitting at the sidelines
1: all right maria these are important issues for sure we thank you for the update
5: Thank
1: you so much. Maria Ziba, Director of International Affairs for the National Pork Producers Council, and you can uh, be sure we'll be discussing some of these issues as well the next couple of days in Dallas at the World Meat Congress. Well, coming up next, the lawsuit against EPA, the Renewable Fuels Association, National Corn Growers, American Coalition for Ethanol, and National Farmers Union, with support of Farmers Union Enterprises, have filed suit in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit challenging these uh, several waivers from the RFS by EPA. We're going to talk about it with Jeff Cooper, Executive Vice President of the Renewable Fuels Association, coming up next on AOA Adams on
8: Agriculture.
4: Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, the inventor of my pillow. And like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. And you can wash and dry my pillow. And here's my best offer ever get four My Pillows for the price of one. That's right, get four My Pillows. Two premium pillows and two travel pillows for the price of one. Order my pillow at 800 871 7280 and use promo code FARM 11. Get four my pillows for the price of one. Call 800 871 7280
3: and use promo code FARM 11. Go to mypillow.com and at checkout use promo code FARM 11. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Besides weather, the theme of the day in the markets. Over the latest tariff announcements that may come out of the White House. Weather-wise, today features rain in the northern through southeastern Midwest and the southeast. Hot and stressful conditions seen in the southwestern plains. In the grain and oil seed sector, we've got minus signs midweek. Sellers knocked July soybeans off their intraday high yesterday to close lower, forming a bearish outside day. The action defining Tuesday's high at 10:49 and a half as new short-term resistance. Entering Wednesday's session, the 20-day moving average, 10-day moving average, serving as support from 10.20 and three-quarters to 10.24 an hour into the day. July soybeans, 10.18 and three-quarters, down a dozen. July corn erased intraday gains to close moderately lower on Tuesday. Sporting losses on this Wednesday, 5 to 6 cents lower. The selling yesterday etching new resistance at 4.10 per bushel. In the wheats, we are 15 to 17 cents lower in Chicago and Kansas City, trending a dime, if not more, lower in Minneapolis spring wheat futures. Livestock at the Merck and live cattle futures were off the best levels of the early session, but an hour in, a nickel to 30 cents higher cash cattle country said to be quiet so far on the week early asking prices around 115 plus in the south saw sales averaging last week at 110 according to USDA down around five bucks from the previous week feeder cattle now trending 15 to 37 cents lower lean hog futures 27 to 87 cents higher Outside markets on Wall Street, the Dow up 116 points, S&P up 15, crude oil up 64 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson for the American Ag Network.
6: Reason number 12 why you should own a Thermospas hot tub, they require no attachment to your home's plumbing. Thanks to the Thermospas unique built-in thermo filtration system that filters the water an incredible 144 times a day, you simply fill it with a garden hose and your water stays crystal clear with very little maintenance. Call to receive a free DVD and brochure and find out how you can own a Thermospas hot tub for only a few dollars a day. Right now, they're offering 0% APR financing with approved credit and a $1,000 savings coupon including free delivery delivery. delivery, free chemicals, and a cash discount. And with models starting at $4,995, there will never be a better time to own a Thermospaz hot tub. So call now and ask about this limited time offer. Call Thermospa's today at 800-991-5852 for your free DVD and brochure. That's 800-991-5852. Thermospas, hot tubs designed to improve your life. Call 800-991-5852 today to take advantage of 0% APR financing.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams.
1: All right, welcome back. We're going to get the latest on this lawsuit filed against EPA by the Renewable Fuels Association, National Corn Growers, American Coalition for Ethanol, and National Farmers Union. Joining us now, Jeff Cooper, Executive Vice President for the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, thanks for joining us.
9: Well, thanks for having me, Mike.
1: Okay, is this lawsuit... uh, Against EPA, is this about their overall policy of granting waivers, or about some specific instances where they've granted waivers?
9: Well, it's really both. I would say um, we're uh, really uh, the, the the challenge is to three specific uh, exemptions that EPA granted, um, but I, I think we're we're using those uh, as examples uh, or, or symptoms of, of a much larger problem that we're seeing at EPA. And really one reason we're going after those three specific uh, refineries, Mike, is because we, we only have information, confirmed information uh, about a handful of these refineries. The other ones um, have been done uh, completely in the dark at night, and so they haven't been publicly confirmed. Uh, there's a lot of hearsay and a lot of rumors about who received exemptions and who didn't and for what volumes. Um, and so we kind of had to go with, with what we were able to confirm uh through publicly available uh information and and in this case uh these companies uh, disclosed in their in their uh you know filings to SEC that they received these exemptions
1: so what do you hope to co- have come out of this jeff uh, obviously you want more transparency you want uh uh some changes in how EPA goes about granting these waivers but do you you also hope to get something done about what already has been done, a reallocation, if you will, or or what right. is the outcome you hope for here?
9: Well, it's it's really several things, uh, Mike. And 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 first and foremost, we, we want EPA to uh, return to the the more objective criteria that they've used in the past for evaluating these petitions for for small refinery exemptions. Very few of these exemptions were were given out. Um, really prior to 2017. Uh, and, and so under the previous administration, they, they were very careful in how they, they reviewed these petitions. Uh, they were, I, th- I think, uh, very objective in, in, in what they looked at. Um, and so now we've got a situation where EPA is, you know, as, as Bob has said, if, if you have uh, Administrator Pruitt's address and a stamp, um you're pretty much guaranteed that you're going to get an exemption and 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 that's just not what the intent of the statute was um we're not challenging epa's underlying authority to exempt certain small refineries really what we're challenging is is the um abuse of that authority and and the the very generous and and overly liberal uh reading of of their authority and and kind of the lack of any criteria to grant these things they're just like i said if 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 a refiner comes knocking on their door they're going to give them a a hardship exemption
1: i think that's a good point you're to make here you're you're not challenging epa's authority to grant certain small refineries uh an exemption because that is part of this but it's what's the criteria that EPA is using as you said it seems like some of these refineries that are getting the exemptions certainly do not uh, fit into the category uh, the way the statute was written
9: for this right and and the statute says well and I guess we can back up you know when when Congress enacted the original RFS 1 program they did um, you know uh, write this small refinery exemption provision into the statute so so EPA does have the authority to grant these exemptions but it was meant to be temporary uh, when, when Congress uh, first produced this provision. Um, and and so, you know, 10 years later, uh, we, we have EPA still issuing exemptions that were meant to be temporary. Uh, and really, Congress allowed the continuation of this provision only in cases where refiners could show that, that complying with the RFS would cause them disproportionate economic hardship. Um, and, I, and I think it's really tough for us to swallow uh, you know, an argument that a company like Holly Frontier, which is one of the ones we're challenging, um, is suffering disproportionate economic hardship at the hands of the RFS when at the same time they got a you know, $3 million tax cut um, and they were in the middle of, of buying back $1 billion in stock um, and and had seen, you know, records or, or near-record stock prices in, in recent quarters. Um, this is not a company that is under financial stress. It's a company that's doing very well, and so for it to turn around and, and claim economic hardship uh, and then be granted that exemption uh, just uh, smells really fishy to us.
1: We hear EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt said he's just following the law and which kind of leads to why doesn't congress step in and fix the law then if there's some kind of a loophole or so much gray area but we know that takes time i guess you also run the risk of opening up the rfs for them to go in and do that but this could take time as well right i mean some of these legal cases can drag on for a while
9: well well that's that's true um but we're what we're looking for is is really a, an immediate stop to the the very kind of willy-nilly issuance of of these uh, exemptions and then to your earlier point we we are hoping that as a result of this challenge um we do see some some repair of the harm that's already been done to our industry we've we've lost 1.6 billion gallons or more of rfs uh, related demand as a result of these small refinery exemptions for the, for the last two compliance years you know how do we get that back we we we, we think um it only is fair and, and makes sense uh, for EPA to repair some of that harm. But it will take time, um, you know, and you you, you pointed out that, that, you know, Congress may have a role in this. Well, members of Congress have been asking EPA for more information on this, on these exemptions, who's been getting them, what is the, the volume impact. Uh, we've seen a number of letters from uh, folks like Senator Grassley and Senator Ernst um, asking for that information, and EPA has just been blowing them off. So that's another thing we're we're hoping to do with this challenge: is really force the agency's hand to to be a little more transparent and forthcoming uh, with some basic information about uh, about this program.
1: Yeah, that's why I said earlier this lawsuit's not a surprise because so far all the talks and meetings and attempts to get that transparency and. And clarification from EPA and hopefully see some uh, sort of change of direction on their policy of uh, granting these waivers Uh, we've not seen any action we've not seen any uh, move by EPA to make a change so that I guess kind of forced your hand didn't it
9: well it it did and and we you know we've been considering this for a while Um, but to your point uh, you know we've been trying to engage in a a good faith effort with EPA to, to get the information we need and the marketplace needs um, without taking these sorts of drastic measures, but, but they, the agency just has not been cooperative. Um, and meanwhile, we, we hear that, you know, it seems like every other week or so we're hearing of more exemptions being granted. So uh, we really felt like we were to the point where we had no choice uh, but to challenge uh, what EPA is doing and, and, and its distortion of the intent of the law here. So, um, you know, we, we, we like I said, we, we tried to do it. Um, a different way, and that way wasn't working, so we, we resorted to to filing this suit yesterday.
1: We're talking with Jeff Cooper, Executive Vice President of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, also wanted to uh, talk to you about the big meeting you held in Minneapolis a few days ago, looking at export opportunities for ethanol, especially in that uh, Pacific Rim uh, region over there, and it sounds like there is tremendous opportunity there.
9: There, there really is, Mike, and and these two things are sort of related. I mean, we, we we look at the challenges we're facing on the domestic front in terms of of ethanol demand and and some of the restraints that that EPA and and the oil companies are putting around expansion of of ethanol demand here at home, um, and, and so you know we're we're looking increasingly at um, expanding ethanol demand internationally and, and seeing uh, tremendous opportunities. Uh, really all around the world, but one one region in particular uh, is the Asia-Pacific uh, region. As you mentioned, we, we had uh, representatives from, from 17 countries uh, in that part of the world um, meet with us in Minneapolis last week for a, a summit uh, that was co-sponsored by RFA, the Grains Council and, and Growth Energy. And really the, the purpose was just to, to introduce or reintroduce them and, and update them on, on everything that's happening with ethanol uh, here in the United States to talk about the, the emissions benefits, to talk about uh, the, the economic benefits of, of using ethanol. Uh, very constructive meetings, I think, very good dialogue, uh, and, and just good back and forth, I think, with, uh, with these folks from, uh, from the Pacific Rim.
1: Yeah, obviously a lot of benefits, as we know, from using ethanol, but uh, a driving force for them is going to be uh, trying to clean up their air in a lot of those countries.
9: Well, that's that's right. When you look at where uh, people are buying more vehicles and, and, and driving more miles and burning more gasoline, um, it isn't necessarily in the developed world and in North America or Europe. Uh, it's in Asia uh, where the middle class is growing, and 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 more people are buying vehicles and and uh, burning more gasoline, and, and therefore there's more greenhouse gas emissions, and there's more um, you know particulate matter uh, pollution and and ozone problems, um, and so they you know they are recognizing that ethanol has helped address those issues here in North America, and can absolutely help them in in parts of Asia. Um, one thing that they've been concerned about is, well, what are the economic, you know, is it going to cost us more money to use ethanol? And so I think a very important piece of, of the educational campaign we've had with these folks is to show them that, no, just the opposite is true. You can be saving money. Uh, your consumers can be saving money, and, and your refiners uh, can be saving money by blending more ethanol uh, into gasoline in that, in that part of the country while at the same time cleaning up your air.
1: Ironically, that's a message we're trying to get across to people in this country. <laughs> While <Well, laughs> at the same time, we're trying to tell you know get it across to people in other parts of the world. Some of those places, the, the people in some of those other parts of the world seem even more receptive at times than uh, some of the folks we're dealing with here. So that, that is yeah, ironic and challenging. Jeff, good to talk with you. Thanks a lot.
9: All right, thank you, Mike.
1: Jeff Cooper, Executive Vice President of the Renewable Fuels Association. All right, next we switch to biodiesel. They've made a change in position on the uh, blender's credit. They were pushing to have it switched to a producer's credit. Why have they backed off that position? We'll find out. We'll talk with the CEO of the National Biodiesel
10: Board next on AOA. If you or your family love the freedom of swimming any time of year, if you love sharing good times and making great memories, or if you want one of the best total body workouts ever, then it's time to discover the three C's of your very own endless pool. The first C is convenience. Imagine swimming year-round in your own private swimming pool, installed indoors or out, just steps away. The second C is comfort. With sculpted spa seats and your own adjustable temperature, you can easily escape the stress of your day. And the third C is cost. Your endless pool is an affordable luxury at a fraction of the cost of a regular pool. And here's a bonus C, choice. Because when you call for your free endless pool idea kit, you'll receive information on our full line of pools to suit your budget and location.
6: Call now for your free information, 800-717-0734, 800-717-0734.
1: I'm here to tell you that your options for getting out of debt have never been better. How do I know? Because I'm Howard Dvorkin, the founder of Consolidated Credit. For nearly two decades, we've helped over five million people just like you. And every time we help someone, they all say the same thing. Why didn't I call sooner? If you owe too much money on your credit cards and you feel that you'll never be able to pay it off, don't wait. Simply pick up the phone and find out what our Freedom Quest program can do for you. Reducing your payments by up to 50% is just the beginning, but you have to take the first step. When credit card debt is the problem, we're the solution. Call Consolidated Credit now. As soon as you call,
8: the hard part
4: is over. Call Consolidated Credit now. 1 800 489 7204. 1 800 489 7204. That's 1 800 489 7204. 5701 Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Licensed Debt Management Service Provider, Vermont and New York Banking Departments, Maryland 49, Oregon DM 80031.
7: All right, crew, let's get her dug. brought to you by common ground alliance all right guys we're ready for our four season sunroom and daddy's gonna get a rec room with
4: refreshments
5: oh no we'll be sleeping under the stars mom what
3: about the one with you know the fun nice try little bro it's a gym my gym. Hey, Grandma's getting her Four Seasons garden room. Weather
5: tight and still like being outdoors. Maybe a living room. Oh, no, wait. A family hub. Yeah.
6: yeah. No matter what the budget, the season, or the climate, Four Seasons sunrooms let you and your family enjoy the outdoors inside. Call now to hear more about these great offers from the premier manufacturer of sunrooms since
0: 1975. More reasons for four
4: seasons
6: now to find out more call toll-free 800-988-4477 that's 800-988-4477 call 800-988-4477 today
11: we paid less for our craftmatic today than we did 20 years ago
0: information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams.
1: Welcome back. We've talked a lot about the RFS and what's going on with ethanol and just talked about the lawsuit against EPA. Some things happening with biodiesel. Want to kind of catch up there. Joining us now is the CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, Donnell Rehagen. Thanks for joining us here on Adams on Agriculture.
8: Well, thanks for having me, Mike.
1: Okay, interesting. Uh, You have been supportive of uh, the position of switching the blender's credit for biodiesel to a producer's credit, but now you're no longer supporting that position. Is that correct?
8: That's correct. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of market factors that have changed over the years that we've been uh, promoting a producer's tax credit. And the most notable recently has been uh, our success on the trade front in our cases against Argentina and Indonesia. We were seeing a significant amount of product hundreds of millions of gallons of biodiesel uh, coming in from those countries that uh, dumped and subsidized prices and those were creating a huge challenge and that was a lot of the reason for our push for a producer's tax credit but our success on the trade cases have kind of leveled that playing field and so uh, the blenders tax credit becomes much more viable for our industry
1: so you're not as concerned right now about those imports from other countries of biodiesel
8: that's correct. Uh, you know, we're, we're America, right? We're for free trade. Um, uh, we're for fair trade is what we're for. And so uh, we, we've seen that we've been able to level the playing field from those uh, uh, countries who have not necessarily been playing the game in a fair way in the past. And so uh, the duties that have been imposed uh, through the process have leveled that playing field. And so our, com- our domestic producers are very competent and very capable of uh, competing in a, in a global energy market.
1: All right, but uh, you did not get the, the the tax incentive extension that you were hoping for. Uh, where, where do you stand with those efforts now?
8: Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's an ongoing battle it has been for us and, and always creating challenge for our industry. That tax credit is a big component of uh, our producers being able to make the investments that they need, and that tax credit has been in place since 2005, but quite frankly, over the last 10 years, Has been off a year as much as it's been on Uh, so therefore again not enough certainty for us and so uh, Congress in February of 2018 reinstated the tax credit for 2017 Uh, so retroactive uh, one year and we are still today here at the end of May uh, seeking a tax credit for biodiesel uh, for 2018 so that uncertainty continues in our uh, in our space, and that's something we at the National BioDiesel Board are working hard to try to replace that uncertainty with a longer-term uh, blender's tax credit that uh, our producers and downstream blenders can count on for a long time.
1: donnell now explain to us how does that work? What's the benefit of, of granting it retroactively? I mean, you get it for a year that's already passed. How how does that work?
8: Well, it, it, you know, it, it, it's it's. Better than not, I suppose, but uh, what we would certainly rather have is a prospective view of that tax credit, knowing it's going to be in place so that our producers can make investments in plan expansion, make investments in staff, make it uh, you know, investments to produce more product and put it out into the marketplace. So um, it, it, quite frankly, doesn't do what it was set out to do back in 2005 by being reinstated retroactively
1: what is the state of the industry right now is there any growth are you uh... pulling back where are you right now
8: yeah no we're we're chugging along it's uh, our industry is doing well the rfs is still a key uh... uh key propon- component of our industry and so it uh... continues to create that demand that that we see our production numbers domestically here in twenty eighteen are up from what we've seen in the past and again a lot of the reason for that uh, is because there's less imported product in our marketplace. So generally our producers are hanging in there. Uh again the uncertainty the tax credit being absent this year creates as well as uh the unknown of what this EPA is going to do uh with our RFS volumes for uh, 2019 and 2020. Uh we'll learn more about that over the summer and uh, ultimately see that rule finalized in November as to what our volumes will be moving forward but Still too much uncertainty for us, but uh, we're, a, we're an industry of uh, folks who've been used to uncertainty um, and uh, have generally learned how to sort our way through the, uh, through the maze.
1: You obviously want to see an increase in those RVO levels in, uh, by EPA. What levels would you like to see? What number Do you have numbers, targets that you would like to see them go to?
8: We absolutely do. We, we know for a fact domestically we can produce right at 3 billion gallons a year of uh, biomass-based diesel, so biodiesel and renewable diesel, and uh, we, don't, we believe there's no reason the EPA shouldn't set those volumes for 2019 and 2020 consistent with what we know we can produce today in 2018.
1: Can you give us a breakdown of uh, most of the biodiesels made from soybeans, uh, right? I mean, uh, but other products are used as well. Can you kind of give us a breakdown of uh, uh, the raw su- material supply for biodiesel?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Soybean oil continues to be the uh, the major uh, component of biodiesel production. Probably between 50 and 55 percent of the biodiesel produced today in the United States is made out of soybean oil. Uh, a growing feedstock has been corn oil that uh, is generated from ethanol production. That's been a growing feedstock over the last three or four years, so that's a, a fairly major player. Animal fats uh, from all the uh, parts of the animal that we don't like to eat uh, can go into biodiesel production as well. And then restaurants will so use cooking oil uh, collection as a fourth component. So those are the, the major four. And it's one of the things we're proud about as a biodiesel industry is 100% of the biodiesel made is made out of product that really doesn't have, a, you know, another useful purpose.
1: And what is your market share within the diesel fuel market?
8: Well, it's still relatively small. Uh, the diesel fuel market is about 65 to 70 billion gallons a year. And as I mentioned earlier, we're on a pace uh, this year to be able to produce about 3 billion gallons. So it's uh, still a small piece, but a major uh, a major component for, uh, for our industry, a major player in, in the creation of jobs, uh, out in the rural economies particularly, and the great things that biodiesel does for the environment as well. So uh, we love the spot we're in. We know we can be bigger, and that's our goal.
1: All right, Donnell, always good to talk with you. Hey, Thanks Mike. for the update.
8: You as well. Take care. Thank you.
1: Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. All right, that wraps it up for today. I'm off to Dallas for the World meat congress I'll be broadcasting from there tomorrow and Friday we'll talk a lot about trade we'll talk about the the prospects of selling uh, more U.S. meat products around the world what are some of the key markets what are some of the uh, hurdles we have to overcome we'll have updates for you the next couple days hope you'll join us right here on AOA Adams on Agriculture have a great day
4: The mighty Prosaro, king of fungicides. Its fast action and long residual make it the keeper of grain quality and yield, the hammer of head and leaf diseases, the number one reducer of scab. When your goal is greater wheat quality and higher yield, use Prosaro fungicide, and the crown of higher profit will be yours. Learn more at prosaro.us, always read and follow label instructions.
3: Thank
11: you